when Mike was sharing his little praise report, what the Lord had done, I was thinking as he was talking, I, I, I first I went somewhere else with what he was saying. I thought he was connecting the blessing of the Lord, the financial blessing, to him being hot, us being hot in here. So I was like, hey, turn the AC off, turn the fan off. Let's all be hot so we can all be blessed. But, but we're not that type of church. We can't name and claim no blessings. That's not what we do. So turn the AC up. Let's stay cool. But I love hearing stuff like that, especially those kinds of things. Because sometimes, let's be honest, you know, when you hear other people be blessed by the Lord and you feel like, man, that's not my experience, so you think like the Lord, we know he cares about, okay, we're going to heaven, but what about like the cares right now? Those kinds of stories help us remember that the Lord is near. He's watching. He's with us and he loves his people. And even when you're not asking, he's ready to let us receive. And so it's really cool to see stuff like that happen. So praise God for that. All right, let's jump in. We got a lot to talk about from these six verses. It will seem inconsequential, but as you'll see, Paul was doing some crazy stuff here. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for just worship as, as Mike was talking about just seeing thinking of worship when he thinks of Shagun and Joyce, he was basically saying that we, we tend as people to think of worship as the music portion of a Sunday service. But what Mike was talking about and what you see is worship is a way of life. It's, singing is a part of worship, but it is not worship and then all of it is worship. Everything that we do, which we'll see even in this particular passage this morning, is an act of worship. So I thank you for people like the Olagan Jews, and we're sad to see them go, but we're grateful that they're going to impact people's lives somewhere else so that one day in the eternal kingdom, people in Bangkok will thank them and they will thank others for the input and influence that they've had on each other's lives. May their gratitude and their legacy for their time being here be efficacious for the rest of us to be used by you for your glory. and not use you for ours. So Lord, I just pray that you would help me today. You've always, you've given me and this responsibility to communicate these things and I am inadequate to effectively do that. I have no ability to change anyone's hearts or to make anyone believe anything that is said today, but you do. And there may be things that I say that are inaccurate. So Father, I pray that you would, what's wrong with what I say today, I pray that it would be quickly forgotten but what's true, would it burn on the hearts of every one of us? For I've never preached a sermon that didn't apply to me even as I'm teaching it. So, Lord, may today be no different because it isn't. And may it be for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, beginning in Romans 15, looking at verse 7 through 13. Those are our six verses today. We're going to jump in, and I quote, Therefore, Welcome one another just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers and so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing praise to your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse 
will appear to the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in him. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Is there anyone here ethnically Jewish? Like you were of Jewish descent, your parents are Jewish. Is there anyone here ethnically Jewish? Okay, so all of us are Gentiles then. So this is talking about you, ladies and gentlemen. These passages are talking about you. Gentiles are just people who are non-Jewish. So I am preaching to a Gentile church this morning. So everything that has to do with these words directly applies to you. Even if you were ethnically a Jew and you believe in Jesus, it applies to you too. But he is specifically highlighting Gentiles. And there's, there's a reason for this. There's a reason for this, which we'll get to in just a moment. All right. Beginning in verse 7, Paul starts off with the word therefore. So let's remember the therefore rule. What does therefore mean? Therefore is always him connecting to the previous idea that he just shared. So therefore usually means like, so for this reason or, or in light of what I just said, or because this is true. So whenever he says, therefore, he's saying, whatever I said prior to what I'm about to say now is the reason why I'm saying it. So therefore, because this is true, what I just said, what I'm about to say is equally true. So he says, therefore, welcome one another. But what did he say previously that he's connecting this to? Well, I believe he starts at verse 5. He prays. He gives these, at the end of his letters, Paul does this a lot. He gives these quick prayers, these little benedictions. And so if you look at verse 5 of Romans 15, here's what he says. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another. So the God who gives the endurance and the encouragement that we just sang about. Him working through Mike's narrative allowed us to be affected by that. Many of us, if not all of us, are encouraged by that. And encouragement gives endurance. It's like, all right, I can keep going. I can keep going. I can do this. You can do it. So he says in verse 6, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. So because that's true, here comes the therefore, because of that, because God gives you endurance, because God gives you encouragement, so that we can glorify him, welcome one another, just as Christ welcomes you to the glory of God. So because verses 5 and 6 are true, and frankly, the whole beginning from Romans 1, 1 to verses 5 and 6 of chapter 15 are true, welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Now, I don't know how you see these, but this sentence is basically the template of all Christian obedience. All Christian obedience is found in this template right here in verses, in verse 7. He says, essentially, this. He gives a what, a how, and a why. And this template you can put on any command pretty much in the New Testament just about. Here's what he says. Here's the what. Welcome one another. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to welcome one another. Accept people. Receive people who are professed believers in Jesus. He says, welcome one another. 
cases, like you see this all over, the, all over the scriptures, particularly in the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts because it's the narrative of how the church became the church, and you see all these little stories of salvation, but you see something really different than how we process salvation today. So let's go to Acts 16. Let's look at three verses. Here's what happens. This is a woman named Lydia. Listen to the story of, of her conversion and what happens after this. Beginning in verse 13 of Acts 16, here's what it says, and I quote, On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. Purple cloth means she had money. Purple cloth then was very expensive. She's a dealer in that, so she has money. And it says she was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So here you see this welcome everyone in the faith. So here's what happens. Back then when people got baptized, if they believed what was being spoken and were willing to get baptized, for the apostles, you believe in Jesus. You repented of your sins. The apostles never baptized anyone that they didn't think repented of their sins and believed in Jesus. So they, she hears a message. Her and her whole household get baptized. She's a Christian now. Just because of the baptism. You believe the message and you're willing to get baptized. You're a Christian. So then why does she say this after that? She says this in verse 15. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come stay at my house. Why does she say, if you consider me a believer? We just baptized you. What you mean that we consider you a believer? Well, you know why? Because, you see, there were no fruits. There was no acts of repentance. It wasn't like they said, okay, you profess to believe in Jesus. Stop doing all the stuff that you're doing and come back in six months and we'll evaluate if you really and then we'll baptize you. That's not what they said. They baptized you and considered you repenting of sin if you believe the message of Jesus. So when she says, if you consider me a believer, she's testifying, I have no proof that I really believe this apart from being baptized. So it's possible that you might not consider me a believer and welcome me in. But if you consider me a believer, stay with me. And it says she persuaded us. There was no demonstrated acts of obedience for anyone that was baptized in the book of Acts. They believed and they got baptized and then lived their lives according to the faith that they professed. This is different because today, when we evaluate people, we'll welcome people after we scrutinize their faith. We'll do. We'll welcome people after we scrutinize. Okay, they, do we have? The, do we agree on the same exact things? Do you agree with this? What is this? What do you think about that? But here they preach the gospel. She gets baptized, and you realize they welcomed her because of her faith. They didn't scrutinize her faithfulness. 
See, today we scrutinize people's faithfulness and, and do a lot of what Romans 14 says. We impose on people, okay, if you don't think like this, I'm not sure about you. So the scripture says, well, who are you? Who made you the standard? Who makes me the standard? If you profess to believe in Jesus, then you're welcome. Now, if over time you re- it's clear that you don't, then we'll try to disciple you. But you welcome people according to their faith. You don't scrutinize their faithfulness because everyone is in process. Starting from me on down, anyone in this room on any particular day will find character that you think is opposite of what the scripture says in every single one of us. You catch me on the right day, you'd be like, he's the pastor of the church? That's the pastor? Man, that dude was ready to fight. Every one of us, you'll find something that is unbecoming. But we welcome each other because of our faith. It doesn't say scrutinize their faithfulness. We accept people because you believe. And then a church like ours, where there's a lot of new people coming, we just don't know where people are. We don't know who really is committed by their life and not just their lips. We won't know that. And some people need help. All of us need help learning how to be committed and we do it together. So the scripture, the what is to welcome people. And then it gives the how. Just as Christ also welcomed you. So we welcome people how Christ welcomed us. Now, I don't know how you got saved or what church you went to. There are, you know, we all have experienced some self-righteous Christians. But for the most part, the way Christ welcomed you and I was with kindness. I love the way the apostles did it. There was kindness. There was confidence. They had confidence that she's a believer. I, the scripture doesn't, I can't prove what I'm about to say because the scripture doesn't say this. I think, though, when she said, if you consider me a believer, come stay at my house, they felt like we want to make sure that she knows we consider her a believer, so we're going to stay at her house. It didn't hurt that she was rich and probably had a bigger house, a more comfortable <laughs> house than all the other people in the area. Them folks, we, our houses would be mansions to these folks back then. You got seven, eight people living in a one-bedroom back then. Or just a hut made out of mud. You know, ain't no AC in there at all. They was waiting for that $1,000 check all every day from the Lord. They're confident. They're kind to her. They're confident. And they welcome the fact that she has dignity. Men wouldn't stay in women's homes back then. Particularly Jewish men and Gentile women. They treated her with dignity. Jesus is kind to us when he welcomes us. He gives us confidence. This is who you are in Christ because we have dignity. He treats us like we have dignity. We're people made in his image. And then when you become a believer, even more so that you belong to God. We have dignity. This is how we do it. So we welcome people in. How? By being kind, by having confidence in their faith because they profess to believe. Faithfulness is a, growing, is a work in progress, but faith is a decision. You believe in Jesus, I'm with you. Faithfulness is a work in progress. We need each other for that. That's why I'm glad there are people who've been in this church decades. Don't think of the people who are older in the church as people who are in their own world. No, these are people that can teach each of us how to persevere because they've been through some things. 
We need that. I talked about zeal and wisdom last time. We need both. We need both. But we all have dignity. That's how we welcome each other, with dignity. I'm not scrutinizing you. I'm welcoming you. You have dignity. You might have some things that you do differently or think differently, but there's dignity because you're made in God's image and you believe in Jesus. You know how many people don't believe in Jesus? I'm talking about really don't believe in Jesus. I'm not talking about the Census Bureau. I'm a Christian, but they go to church once a year. They be faithful on Christmas Eve. Faithful on Easter. Bibles dusty as I don't know what. Can't find a Bible app on the phone. It's a smartphone, and you dumb enough and can't even find it. There's a lot of us that profess to be believers, but when you know someone's a believer, oh, we welcome them. You have dignity. We respect you. Because we know in, in, the, in the grand scheme of the world, there's not many people like us. There's not many people who are willing to come to a church, to give to a church, to serve in a church, to read the scriptures that challenge my view of myself, to humble myself and tell others areas where I'm weak. I mean, Mike stood up here and was like, man, I'm battling, making myself look bad. But he was like, no, nah, this ain't about me. It's about the Lord. It's, that doesn't happen easily. So the what is we welcome one another. How? Just as Christ welcomed us. And why? To the glory of God. That's the template of the Christian life. The what, the high, and the wow. This paradigm, what high wow? What high wow? What high wow? <laughs> it is a wow in there too, but that's not a part of the paradigm. It's the essence of everything we do as believers. Let me prove this, just to get one example. There's many, you, you're looking your own, not right now, obviously. If, you, if I see you on your phone, you're like, put that phone down for the glory of God. Look, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Watch, paradigm fits right here. This is just one verse. You'll find this what, how, what, how, why. I keep doing What, how, why, paradigm everywhere. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, right, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children and walk in love as Christ also loved and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Here's a template. What? Be imitators of God. Here's your what. How? Walk in love. By walking in love. You're an imitator of God when you walk in love. Why? Because Christ did it for us to glorify God. It's a sacrificial fragrance offering to God. So we imitate him. There's your what? Be imitators. How? Walk in love. Why? To imitate Christ, to glorify God. This paradigm is all over. If you don't know what the, it's all over. What? How? Why? This paradigm is everywhere. It's always something we do. Our motive for doing it, it's all right there. It's all right there. And how to do it, it's right there. Welcome one another just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. And then he moves on to say, for I say in verse 8, this is 8 and 9, for I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers and so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Let me read this again, because this, this Paul's doing something here that is it's crazy. So he says, For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers, and so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So Paul's wrapping up his letter, and he's doing something clever right here. Paul is being succinctly deep. 
He's being deep. This is deep theology right here. Deep theology succinctly. It's loaded with theological implications. Succinctly deep. Now remember what's happening. It's important for Paul to remind this church of the importance of the inclusion of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. We're included into the family of God, and it's important because the family of God's history is largely Jewish only, with the exception of a few people. You look at the genealogies of Christ and all that they have, like Matthew 3, almost all of those people are Jewish by ethnic descent with a few people who are not. Paul's making it, he's reminding of a significant, important theme in his letter. If you remember back in Romans 11, we did it like six years ago. In Romans 11, <laughs> there was an important section that I did actually two or three sermons on, on the term all Israel. Here's what, here's what it said in that section. Romans 11, 25 through 28. Here's sort of the argument that Paul's been making in that chapter, which you can go back and listen to that message or read the chapter yourself. But Paul says this. I'm looking at, we'll look at these three verses. I don't want you to be ignorant. He's talking to Gentiles. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. So Paul's saying to the Gentiles, listen, don't think that because Jewish people are not getting saved at the rate that you are, that you guys should be conceited towards them, that somehow God has forgotten about them. In fact, God has not allowed them to become, uh, to believe in him so that you all are allowed to believe in him. And then he says, after that happens, all Israel will be saved. And there's been a lot of talk about who all Israel is. I covered what I think in that sermon, so I'm not going to go there. But Paul is communicating in verses 8 and 9 of Romans 15 a very deep theological truth succinctly. And he does in this verse, he uses it, he describes Jesus in common terms that everyone could understand. But it's way deeper than that. So he says again in verse 8, for I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised. A servant of the circumcised. And then he says, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So Paul is giving out two weighty theological truths in this section. The first is that Christ became a servant of the circumcised for two reasons. One to confirm the promise to the fathers, and two, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Those are two reasons. Significant theological statements succinctly packed. Let's look at each of them. To confirm the promises to the fathers. Now that sentence makes sense right before because he said on behalf of God's truth. So he's saying it's God's truth that is part of the promise that he made to the fathers that Jesus would be a servant to the circumcised. So he equates all of this under God's truth. He defines truth 
and God being truth because God created the reality of everything that we know is truth. Everything that we understand as truth comes from somewhere. The very concept of truth is the awareness that there's a distinction between something that's real and something that's not. So where does that distinction come from? In a culture that says live your truth, how do you even have the concept of truth? Where does that come from? How do you even understand something to be true and not to be true? What makes something true is not merely our experience of it. There are plenty of us who've never been to Bangkok that where the, where the Alagandras are going, but they, they're living some truth over there. So it can't merely be the experience of truth. Truth is a standard by which something is measured by. You have to measure, if you say that's not true. So if I walk up and say, I'm Chris McNair. Well, that's not true. His wife would be the first to say that. That ain't true. There's a standard of measurement. He's right there. He's there. The standard of truth is created and it has to be measured. And what he's saying here, what Paul is saying, is that God is truth. It's God's truth. Every word of God is true, whether it's recorded in Scripture or only heard by the heavenly host. God may have a sense of humor, but he never says things that are not true, as far as we know. In fact, in John 17, 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus says this in one verse. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus knew that the word of God would be put into literature form so that people could be reading and be sanctified by it. So he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So Paul is saying that God, on behalf of his truth, made a promise to the fathers. He made a promise that his son would be a servant. In that word, it's not just like, well, how can I help you? What can I do for you? No, no, that's not the servant he was talking about. He was talking about servant that would be sacrificial, that would give his life for the service because he loved the people. It's not a servant like who's going to serve you at your restaurant when you leave here. They get paid, depending on how you tip. Some of y'all ain't going to pay them. So. <laughs> the service here is much weightier. And it begins in Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve sinned and God showed up and there was Satan, Adam and Eve, here's what God says to the serpent, to Satan. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring, that the original language of that means many people, a lot of people, a lot of children, and between her offspring, only one individual. That's why it says, he will strike your head, not they, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So he's going to crush you, but you're going to hurt him. I'm going to allow you to strike his heel, which is an illustration of I'm allowing you to hurt him. He's going to crush you, but you're going to also hurt him. So God says this to Satan in front of Adam and Eve, and then it becomes a promise made to the fathers, namely Abraham. Abraham is the main father, and you see both the promise and the idea of circumcision. So, so, so Jesus is a servant of the circumcised. Well, in Genesis 17, 8 through 10, 
you see all of this come together. God is talking to Abraham and he says this, and to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. So God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. Now, we know from Galatians 3.16 that when he was talking about offering offspring, it was saying something not that we think. Galatians 3.16, Paul is saying this. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. So when God is promising Abraham that his offspring will have these things, Paul is saying in, in some of these terms that offspring was talking about Jesus. So when God says you're going to circumcise the males and the offspring is Jesus, he's making a weighty theological point. Since the promise was made about Jesus, who would be a future male descendant, of Abraham, then circumcision happens to the males who will come from Abraham. Why is there no Old Testament circumcision or anything for women? He says males. Because circumcision is the cutting of the flesh. And the cutting of the flesh of the males foreshadows the flesh of the male offspring that's coming from Abraham and Jesus, that his flesh will be cut. You see, the circumcision for the males was looking forward to the flesh being cut of Jesus on behalf. So the promise that he made to Abraham and making him a servant of the circumcised created circumcision as a looking forward to the day that this servant, your offspring, will be circumcised. His flesh will be cut for all of you. So all the flesh that you cut for generations will mean nothing in comparison to the flesh that will be cut from the offspring that I'm promising you. He's making a very serious theological point here. Succinctly, though. Once Jesus' flesh is cut, then circumcision moves to its original intent. You see, when God said Jesus is going to be a servant of the circumcised, what everyone thought initially was, oh, the Jews and their flesh are being cut. But there was a deeper point. Because circumcision was never intended for the flesh only. We learn this in Romans 2, 28 and 29. Are we working today? <laughs> this is what he says in Romans 2, 28. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who was one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. So circumcision of the heart was always deeper than the flesh. 
So the males were circumcised in the flesh in way to look forward to Jesus being the male descendant that would have his flesh cut. But once that happened, then the true intent of circumcision was no longer just the flesh, but of the heart. And so now women whose hearts are circumcised are now welcomed into the kingdom in the same way. We all, circumcision still matters. It's just a circumcision of the heart. In Acts chapter 2, as they were listening to Peter preach, it says they were cut to the heart and said, what must we do to be saved? That language is intentional. They were cut to the heart. Just like in the Old Testament, they were cut in the flesh. Now we're cut to the heart. Our hearts are circumcised. So the promise that was made to the fathers that allowed Jesus to become a servant of the circumcised was never just for the Jews because after his body got cut, then he was going to cut everyone and have a circumcision of the heart. So even though the promise was made to the fathers for Abraham and the Jews, it also applied to the Gentiles because Gentiles like us have been circumcised in the heart. So that prayer was, that promise was way deeper than just for ethnic Jewish people. It always included people who would never be cut physically, at least to be a part of the family of God. But we're cut to the heart. We're convicted. Why do you think you cry sometimes when you're singing? Why does a song affect you one Sunday that didn't affect you at all two weeks ago? You were on your phone two weeks ago. I'm distracted by things two weeks ago, but today... Man, them words, we hear Manny and JP sing every week, but today, something is different. Now, they're good musicians, but what's different is your heart is being cut. This song hits different today. This promise feels different today. This truth, you believe it today. You feel it. Why? Because we've been circumcised by the heart. So Paul's making a deep statement that Jesus was to be the servant of the circumcised. And if we step back and think about what that means, think about this for a second, that Jesus suffered the full wrath of God because God made a promise to a man. Jesus suffered the full wrath of God because God made a promise to a man. Let's step back one step further. God makes promises to men who consistently break theirs. So God made a promise to a man and then to another man and then to other people who consistently break theirs. He could have said, you know what? These people keep breaking their promises. I'm not keeping mine. But instead, I'm truth. And when I say something, it's true. So if I say that this is going to happen, then it's going to happen because I am the essence of truth. I can't lie. I don't say things that are not going to happen. So even though you break your promises, I'm keeping mine. So isn't it ironic that the category of trusting God exists? That is the greatest irony of all time. Because to think I have to trust God, and God even puts that in the scriptures, as if somehow he hasn't been trustworthy that he needs to prove himself. 
Oh, man. The second reason, he says, so that the Gentiles would worship him. He says in verse 9, and so the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So he proves the point that the circumcised is deeper than just the ethnic Jews. And that begins in Genesis 15, 15. He takes Abraham and he takes him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you were able to count them, then he said, your offspring will be that numerous. So you're going to have people who are your offspring that are as numerous as the stars in the sky if you can count them. That works its way down from Abraham to his grandson, Jacob. And Jacob's name is changed to Israel in Genesis 32. In 32, 28, he's wrestling with God. We've all heard this. He's wrestling with God. And he says, you'll know, God says, the angel of the Lord says, your name will no longer be Jacob. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So now it comes down to Jacob, who now becomes Israel, and they use Jacob and Israel as intertwined. But Israel becomes the people that come from Jacob, which are connected back to Abraham. So the promise made to Abraham works its way down to Jacob, and then it gets to one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, in Genesis 48. Well, he says this, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He said to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make many nations come from you, and I will give this land as a permanent possession to your future descendants. Your two sons born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are now mine. Ephraim and Manasseh belong to me just as Reuben and Simeon do. So, so Jacob is telling his son Joseph right before he dies that God said that he's going to bless me through all of you. He's going to bless all of you and your future descendants. And you have two sons that are technically, biologically, my grandsons. But God has said, those two sons belong to me in terms of being like my sons. So he names Reuben and Simeon, his two oldest. They are the same as them. I'm taking them as my own because they will become one of the tribes of Israel. And then Joseph brings them in, and it says this in Genesis 48, 17 through 20. When Joseph saw that his father had placed his right hand on Ephraim's head, he thought it was a mistake and took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, not that way, my father. Now, the exclamation, I don't know if he was angry or if he was excited, I'm not sure. This one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But the father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. He might have been frustrated, too. I'm old, but don't tell. I know what I'm doing. I mean, one time, my uncle was getting married, and uh, it was like my, she was like, I think she was her, she was in her like 80s or 90s, and it was a relative of mine. And they were giving out these bags of candy. And someone said, hey, let me, we'll go get you a bag of, here, you can take my candy. She was like, I don't want your candy. I want my own. Like, don't give me your candy. I, went, I was like, okay, okay. She was getting it from Abraham. I know what I'm doing. Don't tell me what hand I'm putting it on. And he says, I know, my son. He, too, will become a tribe, and he will be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he. And his offspring will become a populous nation. And a populous nation means many, many different nations. Now, we know from Genesis 41, the two sons that God promised is talking about, that are Joseph's that become his, we know from Genesis 41, 50 and 52, something unique about them. Two sons were born to Joseph before the years of the famine arrived. Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of Orn, 
own bore to them. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh and said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my whole family. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Interesting. So here we talked about this in, in, in Romans 11. So here we have two sons that belong to Israel, but by birth, they're half Gentiles. The other 10 sons are all sort of Jewish, if you will, but these sons are half Egyptian, half Gentile, half Egyptian, half Jew. So they're Gentiles. They're not, if you're not fully Jewish, then you're a Gentile. Remember Paul said to Timothy, A, man, go ahead and get circumcised, not because you have to, but because they know your father's a Greek, and they're going, some of them will be offended and maybe not receive the gospel because they know you didn't get circumcised according to Jewish customs. You don't have to do it, but they're going to be tripping if you don't. This is what he was saying. They're not fully, they're not fully Jews. So when God makes the promise and elevates them to 12, one of the tribes, Jacob, Israel says, this is like my son, then within that tribe will be many tribes, and that tribe in Ephraim is where the Gentiles come from because their origin is half Gentile. The people that come from them eventually become the people in this room, non-Jewish people. So in this sense, the Gentiles become Jews, not ethnically, but covenantally. Because we believe in God, just like the Jews did, who believe in Jesus. And we're circumcised, not in the flesh. Gentiles didn't get circumcised, but we eventually have been circumcised in the heart. Succinctly deep, Paul is wrapping up, saying these little phrases, because he knows he wrote a whole letter reminding us that this is deep theology that has significant implications for this church and for this church. The promises that God made to one man, he kept. And you and I are beneficiaries of that. Thousands of years later. To further prove the point, Paul closes this section with a couple verses. He says this, and so the Gentiles may glorify God as it is written. Therefore, I will praise God among all the Gentiles and I will sing praise to your name. And he starts to quote all these Old Testament passages. And Paul's doing two things. He's proving his point from Romans 15, 4, when he said, for whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. So he's proving his point. By quoting Old Testament passages, to say the stuff that was written back then that just seemed like these stories and narratives and psalms and songs and wisdom literature, that's all for our benefit. And it, and, and it shapes your identity. It's not just for your benefit. Yeah, I'll just read Obadiah today. It shapes your identity. Your identity is shaped by the Old Testament because promises that were made Two people in the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus that relate to who we are today. We are the Gentiles that he was talking about. So he's proving his point that what was written in the past is written for our instruction. And he's also proving his point that the Gentiles have always been a part of God's plan. So first he quotes from Psalm 1849. And it says this, the psalm itself says this, Therefore I will give thanks to you among the nations, Lord. I will sing praises about your name. 
Now, I don't normally do this because I, I don't look at commentaries that often, but when I do, they usually don't have the kind of information that I think translates to the point. Commentaries, depending on which ones you look at, they are often good information about particular topics. Sometimes they understand the Greek better than you or the original languages or the Hebrew, and they can make sure you understand the tense of a certain word. So it means, is it future? Is it past? All these different things. And sometimes it's not helpful. You wouldn't necessarily use commentaries into what you're saying, and depending on your teaching style. Some people use them all the time. I personally don't find them to be helpful for the way I deliver messages, even though sometimes the information is helpful. But this particular message, I felt like the commentary that I peeked at, Leon Morris is on Romans, I thought he did one of the best jobs of explaining the significance of each of these Old Testament passages. So instead of me explaining what they mean, I'm going to read his brief commentary under each one. So for Psalm 18, 49, it says, Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, Lord. I will sing praises about your name. This is what he says. The first quotation is for Psalm 18, 49, exactly as the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament in Greek. He says, the psalmist will say, confess to God, which means that he will praise him. It would be natural for a Hebrew singer to praise his God, but this one wants to do it among the nations. The psalm is a song of victory, which looks to the praises of God to be sung throughout the world. Evidently, the mention of the Gentiles is what attracts Paul. The psalm goes on to say, I will sing hymns to your name. Delling regards the psalm as relevant to Paul's aim. Here's Paul's aim, he says. The praise of Gentile Christians for God's mercy to them in Christ is provided here with scriptural support. So he's saying the Gentiles, when we sing praise to God like we did today, he says there's scriptural support for that back in Psalm 18. So what we did, that what we do every Sunday morning, there is biblical support and prophetic language that this will happen among the Gentiles in all the nations, whether it's Maryland or Bangkok. He said there's biblical support for what we did when we gather, what we do. He goes on in verse 10 and says, again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. This is taken from Deuteronomy 42, verse 43, 32, verse 43. He says this. This is what Deuteronomy says. Rejoice, you nations, concerning his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his adversaries. He will purify his land and people. Here's his commentary. This passage stresses the note of joy as Moses calls on the nations to join him in happy praise of God on account of his greatness and his defeat of all his enemies. But for Paul, the significant thing is not the cause of the rejoicing, so not that God defeated his enemies, but the call for the Gentiles to rejoice along with Israel. Now, if you remember in Deuteronomy, they hadn't even, they were still about to cross over to the promised land. So most of the Gentiles were their enemies. But Moses is foreseeing a day when even the Gentiles will praise God. And this is what Paul is highlighting. The Gentiles aren't praising God because he defeated the enemies. That's what he did for Israel. Paul's highlighting the fact that the Gentiles will rejoice along with Israel because God has brought the blessings of salvation to both. We see this fulfilled in Revelation 7, every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather around the throne, 
not because God just defeated enemies, but he provided us with salvation. And we'll be among people who were born as ethnic Jews. And, I, I, and the reality was in this church, in the church of Rome, that's what they were. You had Gentiles and Jews joining together as a church, and it was awkward. It's theologically awkward. They're coming from way different ideologies and coming together to believe in a guy who died on the cross, who professed to be the son of God. And the scriptures in the Old Testament are giving them justification. Like, listen, this isn't just happening. It's happening because God made a promise to a man. This is why you're singing. This is why we're singing. This is why I'm teaching, because God made a promise to a man that extended to other men who broke their promises, but he kept his. That extends to us who break our promises, but he keeps his. He goes on, and he goes in verse 11. Then again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples praise him. Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you nations, glorify him, all peoples. And this is what he says in his commentary. This time, there is no reference to Israel and all the world, simply a call to the Gentiles to praise God. The two lines are parallel and express much the same thought. We should not look for great differences in meaning between the two verbs for praise, nor between Gentiles and peoples. So Paul's quoting this using giving biblical evidence that the Gentiles alone praise God. He concludes that in verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, this is Isaiah 11:10, the root of Jesse will appear. The one who rises to rule the Gentiles, the Gentiles will hope in him. And here's his commentary. Now Paul moves to the prophets with a quotation, which he quotes from Isaiah 11:10. This speaks of the root of Jesse, a way of referring to Jesus as a descendant of the great King David. We would normally use root for the origin, like the root of Jesse would be that from which Jesse derived his being. So the root is normally where you come from, is what he's saying. He's saying, but the word is not used this way either in Isaiah or here in Romans. Rather, it points to one who springs from Jesse, one for who Jesse is the origin. Now, he doesn't say this here, but I'm going to say this. So the root is normally the origin, right? What he's saying is the root of Jesse, making what comes from Jesse the origin and not the root, not Jesse. You know why he's saying that? Because Christ created Jesse. Even though he comes from Jesse later, Christ is the origin of Jesse. He is the root of Jesse, even though in human form he comes after Jesse, but in eternity past, he created Jesse. So literally, eternally speaking, he is the root of Jesse. Jesse comes from him, not the other way around. But humanly speaking, just to show you the humility of God, he'll come after Jesse in human form. But in terms of creation, oh, no, sir. That's why the language, the root of Jesse will appear. <laughs> because Jesse came from the root, who is Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things. He ends by saying this, the root came then to be used not only of the root itself, but also of that which springs from the root. So from a household that looked from a royal, that's not actually not helpful. Then he says this, for Gentiles, uh, you'll be like, what did he say? I don't fucking explain it. Then he said, for Gentiles, as for Jews, it was a descendant of Jesse who would be the savior. This is what Paul celebrated. He's reminding them in the closure of his letter 
that the Gentiles, don't forget, your worship, your faithfulness, your obedience, your circumcision of the heart was made because of a promise to a man. God keeps his promises. So he closes with this brief benediction and prayer, and he says this. Now, the God, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's how he closes and how I end today. He says, as in verses 5 and 6, Paul inject, interjects a little prayer as he comes to the end of his argument. In this case, it is all the more fitting and that we have now come to the end of the massive argument of this episode as a whole. We should not think of Paul as primarily a controversialist. He was a deeply pious man, and it is characteristic that he finishes not with some shout of triumph over the antagonist he has confronted, but he finishes with prayer. So here Paul wraps up this great, deep theological reality by saying, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you believe. As you believe is an important conjunction in that sentence. As you believe. Here's why that's important, because there are times we don't believe and he still fills us with hope. But that hope will not sustain you if you don't believe. You will not find comfort in the promises of God. You won't find comfort in needing to endure difficulties if you don't believe. But as you believe, you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about feeling energized and fired up. You overflow with hope. You know how you do it? And all of you do it almost every day. When you continue to believe, despite having challenges that tell you you shouldn't anymore. That's how you overflow with hope. You still are here. I don't mean here at Solid Rock. I just mean with the Lord. You still trust him. That's because of the spirit that is within you. Because almost everyone in this room who's a genuine Christian has gone through something where circumstantially you can be like, man, this isn't, I don't, I don't feel like the Lord loves me. All of us have experienced that. Some of us right now in the same moment. And yet you still believe. That's not because oh, you don't got nothing better to do. <laughs> it's because the Holy Spirit that's in you, that circumcises your heart, is a promise that God made thousands of years ago. And he kept that promise so that we would still worship him. So that when we get to Revelation 7 and we're in eternity, we're going to celebrate together in more ways than we can imagine from a promise that he made. That's worthy of praise. That's worthy of worship. And that's what he's trying to say here. Let's pray. Can someone grab me a communion thing, by the way? Father, your word is, is, is so intricate and you do you do such a great job, Lord, of proving what you say by connecting all these things that were said thousands of years ago. Like when these men wrote this stuff down, they weren't walking around with these just 
trying to make up a story, but you, they were seeing by your spirit the connection to which these deep truths were being made. And so from your word, from a promise you made in the Old Testament comes people like us, Gentiles, who were cut to the heart, who read our Bibles, who fight to honor you in the moral codes, who worship you, who come and gather together with other people, some who we would never have met if not for you. This room is filled with people who would no long, would, wouldn't even know each other probably if it weren't for your grace in saving us. We would have never even crossed paths. Yet here we are, peculiar people, people gathered together of different ethnicities, different uh, age demographics, single, married, children. We are all over the map, but unified by faith in you. Lord, may we be a church who always welcomes people. May we be a what, a how, and a why church in applying your word. And as talked about yesterday, may faith, love, and endurance, may they be the motive for our values of loving one another, increasing in the knowledge of God, connecting with our community, serving, and giving. You are everything. And thank you that you share yourself with us. May we give ourselves to you in gratitude for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have <clears throat> a few questions uh, based on the way you um, ended your prayer. We'll go with this one first. Um, and this is related to... Um, if we observe people that are believers um, interacting with people in a way that seems self-righteous, um, how would you recommend we go about confronting other believers in love when they are unwelcoming or self-righteous to um, others rather than doing things that build up online and interacting with other people? So I think with stuff like that, so when Jesus talks about like knowing the signs of the times, like what age you're in, I think we, we, we don't realize that a lot, of, a lot of the scriptural commands assume relationship, right? That's why the term one another is listed like 96 times in the New Testament, right? It assumes that there's some level of relationship. Like the Bible isn't assuming that you're going to accomplish all of this with the universal church. And by universal church, I mean people who profess to be Christians that you only know because they have it, some posts that they put on their Facebook page. So my, unless you have relationship with folks, I wouldn't recommend correcting people's self-righteousness because I don't think it's going to turn out good because people will be offended like you don't know them. And we don't know why people posted what they posted. What if someone just got robbed and is hurt? You'd be surprised how much anger comes from just being hurt. Sometimes you don't trust people because you've been hurt and you come off as self-righteous and you don't know all of those details. So I personally, unless you have some relationship with the person, you've talked to them a little bit and you feel comfortable, I wouldn't do that to people online. I think that stuff is a facade. That we act like people are really our friends and we don't really know these people. 
We just know that they profess to be Christians and they po post some scriptures and things that we like, so we identify. I don't necessarily feel like that, but if you're going to do it, then I would do it privately, though. Don't post on their wall <laughs> and do that as much if you're going to correct them, unless you feel like you have that kind of relationship. That's, that's there. So if it's, if it's that situation, I wouldn't do it. If it's someone that you know, like in your church, I think you should do it, but do it privately. This is the thing. That, let, let's just be honest, right? A lot of us just lack the courage to do this type of stuff. We just don't want to do it because it's uncomfortable. And so we'll just let things build up. Listen, if, you, if somebody's doing something and you don't think they should and you're struggling with it and you don't tell them, then don't get mad at them. They're just being, you just, you can't blame people for you fearing what they're going to think. Right. You being afraid to say things, right? So I think, so I would say, I would start with what Jesus said, take the log out of your eyes. Like, hey, I know that I got issues too. And so I'm not coming to this person self-righteous. Like, why do you, you know, but I'll pull them aside and might just say, hey, I, I could be wrong, but it seemed like when you said this, that you were, am I, is that, am I off? Like, don't assume you're right because a person might be like, nah, you're right. I was just offended at such and such. We all fail, right? Like, just because we're believers, like, we all get offended. We all get our feelings hurt. We all sometimes respond in ways outside of the Bible. So I think it's just how you do it, and you have to have the courage. But I think you can have courage to do it when you're not coming there like, well, I'd never do stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> when you do that, then that's when you're just going to get your head clumped. Because, because there's always something, that there's always an interaction that you've had that somebody observed that they ain't say nothing about. So I think if it's, then I would say if it's causing an issue, like some stuff you just got to overlook it. Sometimes you just catch people in a bad moment. You catch a wife and a husband having a tiff. And it's like, you're going, hey, were y'all arguing in church and y'all shouldn't, you know, love your wife as Christ of the church, dude. Really? It's like, you don't want to be that guy either. So, you know, but if you see like a continual pattern or something like that, I think, you, you know, you pull people aside and say, hey, bro. Hey, when you, it seemed like you were upset. Are you, because when you said this to your, you know, whatever the case. That's not, I would do it like that. Um, would you please elaborate on, um, on the idea that the Gentiles are necessarily descendants of Ephraim? Do you mean figuratively or literally? Literally. And I, I'm not going to elaborate. I would just say go back and look at, on the website, look at Romans 11. Uh, all Israel, I break it down thoroughly in that, in that sermon, my perspective at least. But the Gentiles are, have from the beginning, because Ephraim is half Gentile, Ephraim and Manasseh, so there, yeah, there's a lot there. You'd have to look at how Ephraim's used in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's used in conjunction with Israel, so God definitely sees Ephraim in, in that way. So I would say that like Ephraim, one by default is, all right, so Ephraim is the northern kingdom, Israel, and Israel went astray. They were taken into captivity in 722 BC by the Assyrians as punishment for their disobedience to God. And when they were taken, they were destroyed. Like no one, they all, they immigrated with the cultures around them and essentially became a Gentile nation. So when the people came back from the southern kingdom, Judah, that's where the term Jews comes from. It's a derivative of saying, oh, I'm a Jew. I'm from Judah. When they came out of captivity, no one knew what happened to the 10 tribes of Israel. It was decimated. They, they were all just incorporated in the Gentiles. They didn't exist. So when, they, when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, those are the Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, coming back as Jews taken out of captivity that rebuild the temple. And so, so they become the new sort of Israel, so to speak. 
But in the Bible, like in like Hosea 11 and different chapters, you see Ephraim is equated to the northern kingdom of Israel. And it says, you gathered other nations, you did this. And I, but then it says, but I will bring you back. And I will bring back to all the nations. of That was all prophetic. Because Ephraim, as one of the 12 tribes of Israel's foundation is half Gentile. So God making a promise that the Gentiles would be saved begins with Ephraim. So anyway, there's more that you can find on in Romans 11, that, that chapter. That's succinctly deep for right now. Also, uh, sticking with Ephraim, uh, the person also asks, also, are you saying that the promise is fulfilled through Ephraim and not through Judah via Jesus? I th the, say that again? They're asking, are you saying that the promise is fulfilled through Ephraim and not through Judah via Jesus? I'm not sure I understand the question, but I'll, I'll try to say this. You'll have to go back and listen to the sermon. But what I think is that when Paul said all Israel will be saved, he was talking about the Gentiles being included into Israel as part of the promise that God made to Israel, which is proven to include Gentiles because of the tribe of Ephraim and their, their entrance and in, in acceptance of the world. So that's, that's what I'm saying. So it's the promise made to Abraham is fulfilled. The Gentiles are essentially a part of Israel in the grand scheme of it because they are one of the tribes of Israel, Ephraim. Uh, Jacob, Israel, prophesied that they would be a populous nation, many nations. So the promise to the 12 tribes includes Ephraim, which becomes a tribe of many nations that are not ethnically Jewish. That's what I'm saying. So that's why it, it happens that way. But yet the message will fill it out more if you, if you have time to go back and listen to that. Well, um, that was the last question that we had. Um, but before you do communion, I just wanted to acknowledge that Albie's birthday is tomorrow. So, happy yes. Birthday. Yes. <laughs> Albie. I'm sorry. That's your birthday, right, Albie? That's tomorrow's your birthday? Oh, okay. Because her, her face looked like, is tomorrow my birthday? Yeah. Well, that's what somebody told me, so. Albie, can you just raise your hand just so people know? Thank you. Let me be clear. Albie is one of the OGs of the church. Whose birthday? Oh, Roger, affirmative. Ray, yes. Ray Rowland's birthday. Ray Rowland's birthday is tomorrow. Ray is the voice of God and Darth Vader, depending on how you, you talk to Ray. If, Ray if, if, he, if he just did one of these, he would sound just like Darth Vader. I'm telling you. One, listen, these are, every church needs pillars. Yeah. And as much as those of you who have come to the church and are younger have a lot of zeal, we're just not pillars yet. No. Those people are pillars. Yeah. Pillars are people that stand and hold things up. Becky and Sherry, they're pillars over there. Julie's a pillar over there. I can go around the room. Ray and Linda, they're pillars. John, I mean, I can go Gene, and I can go over there. They're pillars over here. These are people who hold a church up, and not every church has them. So we need to be grateful for them and thank God for them. But specifically for Ray, which I call Roger Affirmative, <laughs> and Albie, thank you so much for your faithfulness to our church. And we're grateful that the Lord has given you another year here. Thanks for being a pillar here. Thank you.
All right, let's end with how we always end with communion. Can, can someone grab me? I could have sworn. I, oh, someone there? I was like, Dag, I don't even see that thing. Okay, thank you. Whoever brings this nice, you can just drop it right here. It's cool. It's a slide that just goes down. I appreciate that. I was like, Dag, you can't even ask for communion and people give it to you. Jeez. All right, man, we've just, we, Lord, we just spent an hour just talking about your faithfulness and promises and you being a servant of the circumcised, both the ethnic Jews, but also the Gentiles who would be circumcised by the heart. We understand at least what we believe to be true was that the males who were circumcised, whose flesh was cut, was a foreshadow of you whose flesh would be cut because that ends all flesh needing to be cut. Now we're cut to the heart, and it's because your body was cut. So we eat this in remembrance of the body, your body that was broken on our behalf, that was cut for us. And we thank you for that. So we eat this for your glory and our good. And Lord, along with your body being cut, you were a full human being. So it wasn't like there wasn't blood within your actual body. You didn't come down in the form that you reveal yourself in Revelation. When John saw you, you looked different, way different. But when you came here, you looked like us. The blood that you created and the blood vessels and the nerve endings and all the things that help us become the living organisms that we are, you became a part of, you inhabited for yourself. And so when you were dying on the cross, hanging on the cross, experiencing the full wrath of God, being a servant to the circumcised, you also had blood that was shed. And so this, this juice is a reminder to us that your body was broken, but blood was also shed on our behalf. And that blood is for the forgiveness of our sins. And we drink this together for your glory and our good. Now, Father, may even if every point today wasn't clear, may what, may what is clear be what we celebrate. Your word from the old thousands of years ago, it predicted and proclaimed that the Gentiles would worship you. And here's a room full of us. There's a room, there's all over the world, it says, that there are people who have nothing to do with being circumcised in the flesh to be a part of the family of God, but have been circumcised in the heart, your original intent, your deeper intent. Father, thank you for that. And may each of us, wherever we are, whatever we're struggling with, whatever we're getting through, whatever is happening, whether we're hot or cold, whether there's a check or not a check, Lord, we pray that, that you would help us to endure, that you would fill us with hope and encouragement and endurance so that we can one day stand before you and be welcomed into the kingdom and celebrate together, laughing, remembering, having our tears wiped away from all the suffering here and spend eternity with you and with one another. We thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for, the, for this church, Lord. You've given us real pillars in this church, men and women who have believed in you over the, de the decades. We thank you. For, for another year of life for our brother and our sister. We thank you for many other good things that you've given us. Thank you that we have a church that's not one demographic, one ethnicity, one season of life. 
but you've given us something fantastic. You've given us a small taste of what we'll experience in heaven. Different people, same faith. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, for those of you who have children, we will be doing baby dedications on July 31st. All right, so baby, bring your babies. Invite your families, but you just know our parking lot is a little short. So if you if you got a bunch of people coming, carpool because there'll be a lot of parking spaces. There's a lot of people to invite family, but we'll do that. Also, if you're interested in taking the new members class, we normally do it on the second Saturday of every other month. But we had our family meeting yesterday. So that will be on uh, this month, July 23rd. So there will be a new members class on July 23rd. It'll be in the app. Uh, if not there now by today, and then you can sign up and register that. If you're interested, does not obligate you to be a member, but you can further find out what we believe and what we know about and all of that. Uh, having said that, there will be biblical counseling will be the last Wednesday of this month. So this week is a D group week. And thank you. Love you. Enjoy the rest of your week. And we'll see you when we see you.